like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking with Dr Fiona MacDonald about breakfast clubs in schools. Welcome to the program. Thanks Beth, thank you very much for the invitation to join you. Would you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yes, happy to do that. So I'm a a sociologist and a full-time researcher at Victoria University And my research interests are really understanding contemporary life for children and young people and how they um, negotiate what I would describe as quite complex everyday spaces, but they do it obviously every day. So I have a focus on education and learning in my research from a health and wellbeing connectedness and belonging focus rather than necessarily looking at curriculum, pedagogy and teaching because I do recognise schools as very significant spaces in the lives of children in their communities. So even though we think we have this global focus around life and particularly how children and young people live their lives, they still actually negotiate them within the spaces that they live in. And even more so at the moment with COVID-19, even less environments with them sort of being at home and not in the school environment. So, so that's sort of my overall background. And I've been researching in this space for about 10 years. So what was it that inspired you to study breakfast clubs at school? I guess my interest in those is to say it's sort of not about the food is not quite true, but it was more about that sort of recognition of the role that food can play in schools and does play in schools around the health and well-being of children and young people and encouraging or enabling them to be connected or to have a sense of belonging at school. So um, when the opportunity came up um, to have a look at breakfast clubs specifically, and I should um, just state in that. So this is a program that was investigating behind the state government's breakfast clubs in Victoria. And initially in the first iteration in 2016, they were um, rolling out into 500 schools supported by Food Bank Victoria. So, so this research has sort of really came to me through them. And one of the key aspects or the interest that I, I had in it when I was approached to do it was that it was actually investigating how food in schools or breakfast clubs in schools can actually address disadvantage, which is quite different from just investigating the nutrition and hunger needs of students. And and as I've said earlier, that sort of sense of disadvantage, when I'm looking at the kinds of connections that children and young people make in school is certainly a barrier for some children that they need to overcome. So, So breakfast enabled me to step into that space and have a look at it a bit closer. Uh, You probably partly answered this, but could you tell us a bit about the history of breakfast clubs in schools? It's interesting, Beth, because it's kind of hard to actually know Australia-wide exactly what the history of breakfast clubs is, which is quite different to some places around the world, like in France or the UK and the US, where there is a really strong history of breakfast um, and food provided in schools. But that said, when you actually have a look at it, There has been a really strong and long history of food being used at different times in schools to address hunger and poverty in children. And so when I started and I was looking at um, the Victorian program, 
at the same time around the country, there were programs in every state and territory that were being run, some in a similar way through food bank or food organisations and others by places uh, like the Red Cross, others supported by government funding, others supported by volunteers or donations and things. So, so it's quite varied in how it, it operates. I mean, for me, and I'll probably give away my age, my, my first memory of food or some type of food in schools is drinking milk in childhood that was provided and sat in the sun until we went to morning tea and, and drank our milk. And I certainly, I don't know about you, Beth, but I certainly remember you're probably much younger than me, that dislike of milk for quite some time after having had that experience at school. So it goes back a long time, but there's been no specific overall Australian approach to breakfast in schools. It's been very much driven by states and territories. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I've had conversations with friends my age about the milk being supplied at schools and it didn't really worry me that it was actually warm. As you said, it had been sitting there for a while. I drank my own milk and I'd drink anybody else's milk who didn't want to drink it. So, <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine, she, she got very ill from drinking warm milk. And I said, well, it never yep. bothered me. It was, you know, I, I, <laughs> I love drinking milk. I, I think I really filled me up. So I was... I was very appreciative of that. I think too with my daughter who's about 32 now, but I think briefly in her school they actually did introduce the milk for students there, but she wasn't very keen on it. So when she brought the note home, she said, I don't bother filling it out. She wasn't very keen on milk and she said it wasn't very successful. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. I guess the other thing, Beth, to just to sort of on that before I sort of move on with... In, a, in more recent times, I think a lot of the food interest in schools has also stemmed from the idea of, of school gardens and the Stephanie Alexander program that was piloted sort of at the turn of the century, which has now got a 20-year history. Um, but schools being particularly interested in, in gardens and growing and then food becoming an extension of that. So, so in some ways, um, I mean, the Breakfast Club sort of steps into that in a different way but the schools and children are already positioned in a way to be kind of open to that idea of food in schools and that sort of collective engagement with food. So I think that's certainly sort of part of our more recent history that's played into to where we're seeing the role of food in schools and breakfast in particular. So you mentioned before about the government funding. How much is the government funding these breakfast clubs and do you really think it's enough? Look, in a Victorian context, I think the state government's made a significant contribution. So I mentioned that sort of the initial funding or the initial programs to 500 schools started in 2016, and that was run from 2016 to 19 with a budget that was just under 14 million. And then last year, they expanded that program and wanted to expand over the next four years to 1,000 schools across the state moving from just primary schools into secondary and prep to 12s as well as specialist schools. And they made a commitment of $58 million to do that. So it's hard to say it's not enough because in terms of other states and territories around Australia, it's significantly more. And there are certainly some states and territories who don't provide anywhere near that level of funding. So I guess it's a case of does it actually meet the need probably and, and that's sort of an answer when I was looking at the programs and my research finished last year. 
that the schools were feeling that what they were being provided with through the program was meeting the needs of their students, but that there was ongoing needs around lunch, food, and families who didn't have food over holidays and, and, and other times of the year. So look, I think we're very lucky in Victoria that the state government makes it a priority and has recognised that with the increase in amount. And yes, yeah, so the answer would be if it's meeting the need, then yes, it probably is sufficient. So what happens to kids when they don't eat breakfast? Yeah, so if we think about if they don't eat breakfast, full stop, as opposed to whether they eat breakfast at school, certainly the research shows that their ability to concentrate in class, to engage socially and to self-regulate and learn is impacted if they are hungry. And certainly that was evident in the research that I did with the information that was coming back from teachers, that you know they could tell if a child had or hadn't eaten that day, just in terms of their behaviours and their capacity to learn in the classroom. It's also difficult in terms of how much a child's actually prepared to tell you that they're hungry and whether they feel that that's a space that they can actually admit that they might need some assistance with that to bring them up to a level that they can engage in the class in the same way. And there certainly is research that shows that their capacity to engage in relationships, to connect at school, their own sort of sense of wellbeing and participation is limited if they don't eat breakfast at all or have that healthy start to a day. The Breakfast Club provides more than just food and nutrition, don't they, really? Yeah, they do. Um, and that was one of the things that I found particularly fascinating, Beth, when I stepped into um, into the research. And I had the opportunity through it to visit six schools across the, the state as well and just sort of see that firsthand about the type of nurturing and caring environments that are being created through breakfast clubs and that, yes, it is about the food, but actually it's not only about the food. So spaces where children or young people could start the day, and generally, obviously, it's breakfast, so they ran sometime somewhere between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning. So that might have been the first conversation that some of these children or young people have actually had during the day, is to actually walk into breakfast clubs and say hello to the staff or volunteers or their peers who were there. Another fascinating thing that I found through the programs was schools actually using it as part of their welfare and wellbeing program. And quite a lot of them had staff who were councils or social workers or play that type of role in the school where they can actually just observe over the, the interactions at breakfast or the conversations that they had with a child, flagging that maybe there's something going on in that child's life that we need to follow up on. So it was a really nice and informal way of teachers actually being able to touch base with kids. And I think that aspect of breakfast clubs, when I was researching, is under-researched in terms of what's, what's the value outside the actual nutrition which is valuable, but what else is going on in breakfast clubs and what else is happening in the environment and how can schools actually use that as part of their welfare and wellbeing programs to support kids and to identify those who have some special needs. Yeah, schools are, are really moving online and we, we know that children aren't digitally equal, but do you, do you think that it's possible to ensure that in this period of COVID-19, a child's learning and development does not lead to further disadvantage for them? Look, I think it's a really big question and it's one that's being asked as we go online around schools. And, and in saying that, I guess it's a good sort of opportunity to actually flag what we ask schools to do. 
beyond just teaching the curriculum, but actually what we're asking them to do in the lives of children, particularly those with disadvantage, in addressing inequality or addressing the disadvantage that they have. And if I think, you know, back to that sort of well nurturing and caring environment, how do you replicate that online? So how do you actually replicate that for kids in an online environment when it's actually the whole space that works together to actually make them um, feel welcomed and feel that they're being accepted and that there's someone there who's actually interested in their lives? Because that's, you know, the volunteers, the staff, the space, the, the peers who are there as well as the child themselves. So I think it's really difficult. I think it, we, in time we will look back on this period and be able to measure what the actual, whether the gap between disadvantage and advantage has widened significantly. But I think it's, it would be difficult to say that there won't be any impact. But I also think that, you know, some schools and, and um, departments are actually very conscious of that and looking into the welfare and wellbeing in terms of kids as well as actually delivering curriculum online. Do you think that one solution would be to drop door deliver of food packets for children? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I was actually having a little um, bit of a look online because I recall reading during the week a couple of stories where teachers have actually made that part of the, the role that they're going to undertake over the next little while. But again, it comes back to that expectation on schools and teaching staff and other staff at the school and what we're asking them to do. So in some cases, that might be a volunteer from the community who's put their hand up and said, yes, I'm happy to support the school in this way, or as I said, it might be a teaching staff. Um, but it also then depends on how many kids that you're looking at and what's the capacity of a school during this period when they're already being asked to do a whole lot of things that's outside the normal sort of expectation of schools. And also, you know, whilst I think schools are pretty aware of the children and families that may need some assistance, you know, there are a multitude of reasons that children don't eat breakfast at school. So it would be difficult to say that a school in this environment would be 100% aware of all students. But that also depends on whether it's a smaller or larger school. But I think I think it is possible to do the door-dock deliveries. And if that's something that actually makes a difference at the moment, then my experience and what I'm saying online is that schools are prioritising that and doing what they can. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Dr Fiona MacDonald about breakfast clubs at school. Look, um, do you know about uh, this program? Is it for sort of worldwide or would they have this sort of program in America and other countries or UK, would you know? The School Breakfast Club program itself is actually unique to Victoria and the way it's run and then the different states and territories around Australia also run sort of them all slightly differently. One of the advantages of the Australian program on some of the programs that are run internationally. And certainly, yes, there are programs in the UK, uh, across Europe and, and into America. Is that some, some of those programs actually identifies the students who, if you want to sort of use the word eligible, who are eligible for breakfast in terms of their disadvantage. The, the Victorian program doesn't 
restrict Breakfast Club to only those who may be considered to be eligible. It's a it's an all-inclusive program and so any child that comes to school who wants to join in is able to participate. So I think in that way it's quite different than some of the programs internationally and, and I certainly see it as one of the strengths of the program because you know, the stigma or the shame of actually having to admit that you're the child that needs to have breakfast at school is certainly a barrier that's recognised in overcoming disadvantage. So by having a program that is more open and accepting of all does actually work to help to break down that sort of level of disadvantage. But certainly around the world, I think it's recognised that breakfast is a very important meal for student, for children. If they aren't accessing that at home, then schools are places that can address that need. It reminded me of when my cousin went to live in the UK and he was attending school there. And uh, I think it was quite a big political issue, or probably still is, uh, about children sort of having one decent meal a day. And they mainly had hot lunches there. And I was asking him, and he said, yes, that some of his friends had a, it's like a voucher system. And I think they got either free or a fairly cheap meal. And I imagine that they, they would feel quite embarrassed amongst their school friends, wouldn't they? Yeah, it has the potential and also the potential for them not to actually go for that reason. But, yeah, they seem to be different and, and you know, most kids don't want that to be the case and, and it was interesting when I when I was doing my research and I ran focus groups with kids in schools all of who attended the breakfast clubs none of them actually said I need to come because there's no food at home or because you know mum or dad didn't give me breakfast but they were all able in some way or other to describe what feeling hungry might feel like so so yes that sort of being embarrassed or shamed um, is very much a part of how children want to be perceived or how we all want to be perceived by others, I guess. And admitting that at times can be quite difficult. So the program that is being run yeah, in Victorian schools does address that. Now, I suppose one of the greatest challenges of COVID-19 is managing the gap between advantage and disadvantage. Do you think that this task is possible? Yeah, I guess I think, yeah, it is possible, but I'm going to say it's not going to be easy. And it does come back to that sort of where do we look at um, and position the health and wellbeing and the welfare of kids at schools and what do we ask schools to do? And all schools, if they reflected on this sort of period, would recognise that one of their biggest challenges is how do they actually maintain that connection and respond to the needs of kids who may be already living with disadvantage. So... Look, I think it's possible. I think it's a really big ask. I think some of it may not necessarily be addressed during this period. It might actually be need to be considered and addressed when kids come back to school. But, you know, even across a, a, a classroom of, of children who are learning at home, whatever grade that, that they're in, there are going to be a variety of ways that their learning is set up at home. And for some, that will work really well and for others that won't work necessarily as well and that's not necessarily just advantage and disadvantage that's you know individual kids and families and how engaged schools can can make or the engagement that they can make with children on or in an online capacity and whilst as we were talking at the start technology is amazing and we're all very much upskilling and learning how to do things in a different way we really don't know what the sort of longer term 
outcomes of kids learning in an online environment for an extended period of time is actually going to be. So that's something I think we really need to learn from this period because there's some real pluses to learning online, but we also need to make sure that that doesn't widen the gap for some kids in terms of their learning or their connections to school. Anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? No, I think um, I think we've covered most of those things other than, I guess, you know, just when we look at this time and we think about communities, that schools are really important parts of those communities. So as we move to look towards a sort of post-COVID-19 environment, I think schools are going to play a really important role in that recovery and um, adjusting to whatever our new normal is going to be but they also can't do that without the appropriate support and resourcing as well so I think that's something that we really need to think about as we're planning sort of moving beyond what's become sort of our immediate normal to what might be our future new normal. Yeah well, it's certainly a, a very worthwhile study field. Do you have any future study plans within this area? Certainly in terms of kids, uh, children and young people's engagement and connection at school, absolutely, and I'm already doing some work around that in terms of sort of bullying and cyberbullying and how that might play out with COVID-19. Not so much necessarily food, but as I think I said at the start, I mean, food is a very important part of what we're seeing in schools now, whether that's through the breakfast clubs or garden programs or whatever. So I wouldn't rule out the exploration of food, but certainly the focus is much more on, you know, what's this particular period in time? What's the impact going to be on how children and young people negotiate their lives in that sort of aftermath of COVID-19? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, as you said, with, with uh, classes moving online. I suppose it's, uh, it's going to be an education program for parents as well, isn't it? And I suppose there's, there's a couple of different aspects. It's the importance of children eating breakfast before they start their online learning. And also, um, especially with parents having a lot more time now at home, uh, to encourage children, if, if possible, I mean, even if they've only got a, a balcony in an apartment, to start their own little market garden. Yeah, look, I think, you know, the parents are going to, and, and with the support of teachers, you know, look at what can, how can learning sort of happen in the home environment and how does that, you know, how can that just be a part of, of their everyday lives? And if it's, yeah, planting, you know, some some things on the balcony or in a small outdoor area or looking at actually being involved in food preparation or, you know, doing a shopping list or whatever for that sort of one trip a week or whatever we have to the shops. Food gives um, a lot of opportunities for learning. That's part of our everyday lives. And, yeah, I think it's interesting because I think sort of there's the argument that parents may have more time while they're at home but they also may have less time because of what's being expected of them around sort of schooling and working from home and those sorts of things. But so, yeah, when we can make it easier and actually find learning situations that are part of everyday lives, that that hopefully will take some of the pressure off parents. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks, Beth. It's been nice to talk. And I've been speaking with Dr Fiona MacDonald about breakfast clubs at school. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.